Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the New Statesman podcast. We talk about the latest development with the Oxford vaccine. And you ask us, we discuss the counterfactual of what would have happened if the Liberal Democrats hadn't backed a general election in December 2019. So we have just had the news that the Oxford vaccine preliminary results have been published. And it seems to be safe and induces the, basically the kind of immunological profile that you would want. This is a glimmer of good news, isn't it? Yeah, and, and coupled with the other bit of good news about, I'm going to mispronounce it, and every doctor who listens to this podcast is going to cancel their subscription, the positive news about a new protein trial that reduces the lethality of of the novel coronavirus by 79%. That's in cases who have gone to hospital. So, you know, that that is a huge... So taken together, they're both very early trials, but it's two very positive signs in the battle against the novel coronavirus. Yeah, I think the chances of something like this working are, are really quite low. I think I heard 25% was the expected chance of, of, of success for this particular vaccine, and that's high. So I think it's it's really good news. And the only questions, I think, you know, now if it, if it carries on going in the right direction and the rest of the testing means that it, it is a viable vaccine against coronavirus, sort of the next battleground, I think, for the sort of race to the vaccine issue is who gets to have the vaccine. Because I think there was a, a suggestion from Matt Hancock and the Department for Health that everyone in, in the UK would get it. But actually, you know, perhaps it will be more like it would be more sensible to have it more administered more like a flu vaccine for people who are most vulnerable in order to make sure that there's enough doses to go round. And if anyone hasn't read our cover story this week by Anjana Ahuja, she makes the point about the sort of potential for unfair distribution of vaccines, particularly in this world that we live in now with nationalist America style hoarding of treatments and and vaccine doses to try and prioritize your your own country first. So I think that will probably be the next issue if if it turns out that this this vaccine is is everything that it sounds like it is. Yeah, I mean I suppose I suppose before that there is the big caveat that this is it's a good step in the right direction, but we still have no idea whether this will actually prevent 
COVID-19 or, or bad outcomes from COVID-19 in patients who actually have it. So we only know at this stage that it does prompt the, the antibody and T-cell immune response in people who, who don't have the virus that you'd want to see. So it looks promising, but I suppose there are more steps and, and hurdles that it needs to, to clear. And it feels like hope is a bit dangerous almost. But, mm-hmm. but I, I agree that I think that in a scientific way, this is a huge story, but in a way there, there isn't a huge amount to say about it beyond that this, this could be huge and have seismic effects all across the world and and like return us to normality so it's huge but there isn't loads to say where I think I think you're right Anush is is that the interesting thing is the the kind of the international politics of it and who gets to have it and I mean the way we only on Thursday heard that Russia had been trying to obtain access to some of the details of the Oxford vaccine trials that this is kind of a new terrain for a kind of international competition and obviously a, a frontier of potential like global espionage and um, like for all of the, the rhetoric of international cooperation and I think the consensus basically that this has to be a global effort like if there is coronavirus in other parts of the world other countries can't be confident that they'll ever be rid of it so it does need to be a global response but I think that like the competition and the way this is a valuable investment for governments the cross-section of the the national pride element and the more like practical economic impact of it means that we maybe we maybe haven't even anticipated the ways in which the politics of the vaccine will play out yeah because i think so one of the positive things if the oxford trial is borne out and it is successful is that um it is one of the schemes which will, will be widely distributed, right? The, the fears of vaccine nationalism are, are less acute, although obviously in terms of the very live US outbreak, it is palliative treatments that are going to be so important, and indeed the very live outbreak in India and Brazil. But I particularly single out the US because if the US can't get the pandemic under control, then a vaccine is great for the rest of us being able to live our lives. But in terms of the economic consequences of the coronavirus, many of those problems don't go away. But yeah, it's as you say, there's not very much to say other than, you know, it's two very positive news stories Yeah, about the idea that, you know, we may again actually just be able to, you know, rock up to like, I don't know, a pub five minutes before kickoff and be able to actually get in and watch the game or whatever, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it's great. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. time for a section we like to call you ask us very good guys this week we thought we would do another one of our beloved counterfactual questions 
And so the question is, how would things be different if the Liberal Democrats hadn't conceded to the Conservatives' desire to hold a general election in December 2019? Anush, what do you think? I love this question because I remember at the time when, um, <laughs> when what was the argument? I can't, I can't remember. Why were the Remainer parties wanting to have a, um, a an early general election? Because I remember thinking that is the most ridiculous and stupid <laughs> decision that you could possibly make if you want to try and further those political interests. And I, I really can't remember what, what what was the reasoning for it. Was it to try and get in before some new deadline of leaving the, the EU? What was it? So the reasoning, and yeah, obviously with the disclaimer that I was someone who was very pro this, and I actually think still am. Right, okay. <laughs> is that the 2017 Parliament had passed Boris Johnson's deal. Oh, okay, yeah. But we, yeah, yeah, okay, it only passed it at second reading. And obviously, you know, like everyone, like you had all of those people being like, oh, you know, we're going to like install a requirement for him to like ask for a customs union in the next stage of, yeah, like, mm-hmm. you know, like we'll, we'll get some customs union language in like the, the political declaration or whatever. But the, the argument, I think there is somewhere on the NS website a piece where I sort of explicitly say this, the argument wasn't like, as unlikely as people may have thought it was, and I'm not going to pretend I didn't think it was a long shot, as unlikely as as people may have thought it was, there was no route to preventing Brexit that did not run through trying to get a more anti-Brexit parliament than the 2017 mm-hmm. one. Which, you know, I, I know that, like, bizarrely, like, one of the the like weird things that to not have ha- to have happened was like you know the the idea that there was an anti-brexit majority in that parliament managed to survive the literal fact of Boris Johnson's brexit deal being passed at second reading by that parliament <laughs> but you know but there wasn't one and so they had to get another so that was the logic for it obviously the resulting election went badly for remainers in general and the liberal democrats in particular yes okay thank you for reminding me of that but i think the fact that i don't even remember what the logic was shows that I probably still agree with my position back then, which was how on earth could you not want to keep Boris Johnson in this sort of dead man walking parliament? Although, as you say, that parliament and its makeup had passed that deal. But I did think maybe I was holding out some kind of false hope, like ill-founded hope because of the way that they acted, that the Remain voices in Parliament would somehow work out a way of working together in order to in order to either temper or stop what they'd already agreed to. But yes, I suppose only a new Parliament could have helped that to happen. But I think the timing of it, the timing of it was really foolish because it was near Christmas, it was horrible weather, we'd had all of these horrible votes and everyone was strung out and hadn't had any time off and the public, as we know from the election result, were were fatigued by it. And you were basically handing the electorate on a plate an escape from every time you turn on the radio, every time you turn on the TV, every time you get someone knocking on your door canvassing, talking about the same intractable issue at a time when all you want to do is just have have a break and, and have some time off work and be with your family over Christmas and not have arguments about this topic. So it was basically perfectly timed for Boris Johnson's purposes and I just thought that it was really foolish everyone in the Labour Party and and in the Lib Dems who who thought that this was a good strategy I just I just couldn't get my head around it because having him cling on over Christmas and into the new year perhaps could have helped the elect the election result have some kind of different outcome I don't know 
This is a counterfactual and I don't know. <laughs> well, I think I think this is the thing. I think that Stephen's argument or Stephen's summary of, of the Liberal Democrat and SNP argument that that was the only way to stop Brexit, to get a, a more an, anti-Brexit majority mm. is right. But I think that, I mean, I think there were basically two problems with it in that that deal passed its second reading, but like didn't, I can't remember what you call it, but like it basically the timetable for what, like according to which the bill would be voted on didn't pass, which gave Boris Johnson and his government this argument that Parliament was trying to stop Brexit when it had already passed because they could have just like they could have just suggested a new timetable, but they still did this this mad charade of saying, "Oh, we have to go to the you know we have to go to the people because they're not going to let us get our Brexit deal through," when there was already a majority for it in that Parliament as demonstrated by the second reading. So they basically allowed Boris Johnson to and his government to pursue a disingenuous electoral strategy that Parliament was was blocking Brexit when it, it actually mm. wasn't really at that point. And so they kind of hand, handed him an easy win in that way when it wasn't really the case. And I actually do want, do worry that history books are going to forget that that yeah that it did pass at second reading and when it was voted down it was just because of the ludicrously short timetable that wouldn't have allowed for any any debate and if they brought a reasonable timetable that would have passed as well but then I think the second thing is that I'm not actually sure that the just as those those remainers who wanted to prevent Brexit felt that they needed a stronger remainer presence in parliament to prevent Brexit they also, I think, from Boris Johnson's perspective, I think he could have still struggled to get his deal through that current parliament, despite what I've just said. Because when you look at the people who voted for that bill at second reading, it was a very fragile coalition of the most ardent Brexiteers and Labour people who had eventually decided to vote for that deal. And I do think that as it had progressed through parliament and all the failings with it, were exposed and debated and it had more airtime in the media, that coalition for the deal would have fallen apart and that would have been the opportunity for the people thinking that they wanted to stop Brexit. That would have been the time really to then, you know, hope to cobble on, you know, some sort of agreement for a second referendum or something like that's still kind of pie in the sky. But given the thinking that they had around the election itself, I think that they underestimated the need for an election then when they could have a seen if the the electoral coalition for the deal fell apart anyway and secondly they would have just left Boris Johnson in hot water for much longer. So the interesting thing and I'm aware I did this too right we forget that actually this gamble has worked brilliantly for one of the two parties that did it right the SNP had a fantastic election night they defeated uh, and unseated the Liberal Democrats leader. They won a clear majority, you know, in every sense, right? They they did incredibly well in that election in Scotland and they played the campaign brilliantly. They started with their kind of, let's get the core vote and the activists excited by talking about another referendum. And then they ended it in the final weeks being like, look, who is the biggest, strongest anti-conservative force in in this country? You, You better believe it's us, the SNP. And so they got, yeah, they got all of the kind of, you know, the most avid yes voters out on the doorstep very excited and then they managed to get soft no voters remainers of pretty much every stripe and that allowed them to make considerable gains and has finessed their big strategic argument 
I guess this is where kind of the slight weirdness of this this argument, we need to get onto the proper hypothetical, right, is that it exposes the central problem that Remainers had in the last parliament, which is what was the purpose of the 2019 general election? Was it to maximise the chances of staying in the EU? In which case, I thought then and still think now that the mistake was not going when they did, it was when they went, they didn't go early enough. Because I think an election in which the Conservatives have been a party of no deal versus, yeah, like, I'm not saying revoke was, was a brilliant policy, but it certainly, the way people changed about it felt when there was, it was deal versus revoke than no deal versus revoke. Let alone Labour's, we'll have a softer Brexit and then you'll get a say on it kind of like muddled position. Everything else, the way it's perceived, is changed by the Conservatives doing what I did think Boris Johnson would always do, which is go, I don't give a flying one about Northern Ireland. Let's just put a border in the Irish Sea. But it did work well for the SNP. I guess the question is, is so so let's imagine that instead of them having an election, it passes at second reading. I've suddenly realised the thing that we don't know is, are we going to have a no-deal Brexit at the end of the year? Because I cannot conceive of a situation in which the last parliament would not have resulted in a no-deal Brexit. Because the one thing it could broadly agree on was that it wanted to leave, right? Whenever there was a vote on like the broad principle of Brexit, are you into it? The 2017 parliament would vote for it. Whenever it was like a flavour of Brexit, would you like any of those? So like, oh, no, no, no. And I think then you're right, Alva, that that majority, that like anti-majority would have reasserted itself. But we would then have had a situation where because there was no majority to take control of the executive, we would have just tumbled out. Of course, if we just tumble out now, then that hypothetical is a wash, I guess. Yeah, but it's a really difficult hypothetical because... I think it was a bad decision to have that election when when it was had. And obviously for the SNP, it worked out well, but for the Lib Dems and the Labour Party, it didn't. But there were other factors as well that were at play, not just Brexit that came up on the doorstep and that, you know, have been sort of immortalised in Labour's sort of post-mortem about their election performance. And we don't need to go over all of them now. But it's difficult to see those sort of extra Brexit factors changing the the way that people were thinking much into the new year as well. It's hard to, to, to think about it playing out very or any differently if the election was, was postponed or there was no election, I suppose, apart from the fact that it, you know, a big defeat gives the party the opportunity to change, which I suppose the Lib Dems and, and the Labour Party are, are grappling with the early stages of now. And you can argue how much of a blessing or a curse that is for a party. But, you know, just keeping those parties limping on while Boris Johnson with, you know, no proper majority started to implement his Brexit. You know, that probably wouldn't have been good for anyone. So maybe that election was a good idea because it's it's given them the chance to to rejuvenate and and renew. Yeah, because the question I have, uh, I struggle to work out what I think about this one. But, you know, from your journeys around the country during the election, those people who, you know, I think it's fair to say in every seat I went to, even the ones where quite visibly the Conservatives were going to win on a tide of, of Brexiteer votes. In every seat I went to, you met people who were saying, I have doubts about the Labour Party, but I want to stay in the EU. Mm. And, you know, I don't want to, like, rub salt in the wounds of the unemployed, but you can see this in the differential swings, in that, like, you have seats which are equally levy, but where the Labour candidate is, like, 
is themselves a lever and they do worse because they don't even benefit from any tactical Remainer voting. Mm. So the question I have is, is that, well, Boris Johnson clearly wanted, yeah, he was, he was looking, he was trying to commit kind of, you know, dissolution by parliament, right? He was looking for a way out. Yeah. And that parliament was never going to be able to agree on a, fi- a finished flavour of Brexit. It could agree to leave, but it couldn't agree on any other specifics. Now, is an election in which the Conservative Party is arguing for a particular flavour of Brexit, in which those Remain tactical voters do not have a lever to pull to stay in, is that better or worse for the Labour Party uh, it, mm. in terms of the conversations you both had in the in in, in the in the run up to that contest? I mean, it's funny, Stephen, that, that you mentioned the the Remainers who had their doubts about the Labour Party because obviously those people existed and and continue to exist but I was kind of thinking about it the other way from from the people who just wanted Brexit to happen mm. I think we've assumed in this conversation that if the election had had happened slightly sooner and as you say Stephen if the Conservatives had been the party of no deal rather than a party that had a deal to offer to the British people that Remainer parties would have done better because they would have been the anti-No Deal lever to pull. Whereas clearly the assumption among Conservatives from people like Dominic Cummings was that they at least needed to seem like they were gunning for No Deal and that they were prepared to push the prorogation button and that like that had to be the necessary context of the election, that, that they were being thwarted in their attempts to to make Brexit happen. So I kind of feel like, I mean, it's like the big tactical question of like, is your number one goal to stop Brexit or to stop a conservative majority or both? And in some cases, like they're inextricable, but in some cases they aren't. Because I think there's a case to be made that if the Lib Dems hadn't gone for that, Brexit could probably have happened. But in terms of how well the conservatives did afterwards, all of the the groundwork that they had been laying for months and months and months to fight an election campaign would just like have been completely scuppered. And maybe it would have been like, oh, well, we're the party that did deliver Brexit. But the kind of the whole, the whole framing of that election would have been so different if they had held off and would have had to like fight it on completely different issues. So, you know, I mean, for the people who want, who, you know, were against Brexit within Labour, that would have been disastrous. Like tactically, letting Brexit happen was the last thing they wanted. But for maybe more people within Labour, the the thing was to prevent a Conservative majority that big. And maybe if if the Lib Dems had held off in that regard, they would have seen a totally different outcome. Yeah, it's interesting because you raise a really important point about what the Conservatives... Because, you know, one of the many things I find amusing about, like, briefings from Friends of Dom about that period is it's like I'm old enough to remember when Dom Cummings was telling everyone who would listen and if they didn't leave by the 31st of October the Conservatives polling ratings would fall off a cliff and you know Jeremy Corbyn would take over the world which is among other things why they behaved in the way they did in office but also why Dom advised every MP who would listen and they should vote for the for May's deal at the third meaningful vote. Now, obviously, in the in the end, he turned out to be completely wrong about all of those things. But that doesn't mean that he would have been completely wrong about what would have happened. Would have if, as you say, the like energy of stop Brexit. And yeah, I think it, it comes back to like the central thing of like what was the purpose of that election? If the purpose was to prevent a conservative majority first and foremost, or at least to cap its size a bit, 
I guess it also comes you know, back to, you know, to do some sort of BBC bashing, right? One of the factors of that election was the BBC covered Brexit very poorly, right? They didn't cover it in a detailed way. Would they have covered the policy trade-offs of probably three very different Brexit end states better? Because I think if you think they would have, then the election would probably have been quite different. But if you don't, then I just don't see how it would have been. Yeah, I do. I, I think in an election where it, there's not so much clarity between the three Brexit positions of those parties, then you would have to, wouldn't you? Because otherwise, how are you going to represent each of the parties' positions at all, really? Because you've got to explain the differences between them. And if each of them gives a different vision for Brexit, rather than one of them saying revoke and one of them saying, let's have another referendum and then you can decide and well, on our version of a deal and then one of them saying we've got an oven ready deal you don't really have you should but you don't really have to analyze the contents of those three things because you can distinguish between them in a two-minute broadcast clip whereas if all three are saying yes we want brexit you know we have our version of a brexit deal then you just explain the differences between the three and even that is a little bit more explanation and a bit more scrutiny of those from a policy perspective Okay, yeah, so I think, okay, that actually possibly has convinced me that it was actually a, a definite disaster. <laughs> because, yeah, I think, like, <laughs> someone in David Cameron's government once said to me, you know, like, they actually said, you know, they said, look, they said, the thing is, right, if you want an election to be about policy, they're like, you've really got to force the broadcasters to talk about policy. Right? Mm-hmm. This was obviously in the context of wanting to like fight about like, you know, we'll, we'll cut, they'll spend, right? And they were just like, so everything we do has to basically be about forcing them to have the argument about policy. And I think, yeah, you're right. Then if you had three flavours of Brexit, that would have like forced in the same way that the Conservatives under Cameron did a brilliant job of forcing a conversation about policy, broadly by just being like, there was no space on cultural issues in 2015. There was no space on any um, other number of kind of like talkers, as it were, to a situation where the only things they were arguing about were parliamentary arithmetic and yeah, we'll cut, they'll spend. So yeah, I guess it was a was a disaster. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues Stephen Bush and Anusha Kellyan. Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.